If you don't know me, my name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point. We're going to be continuing on in our Scattered Church series this morning and continuing on reading in the book of Acts. And so we're just going to jump right into the scripture this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. If you don't have your Bible, we have uh, Acts journals that you can grab in the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 58 or starting on page 58. And we're going to be reading Acts chapter 10 in its entirety. And so Uh, To give you a little bit of context of where we are, last week we heard about uh, this first interaction that Peter has, and this is the second action, interaction that Peter has with uh, this Roman centurion, this Roman soldier. And so we're going to jump right in, and we're going to read this passage in its entirety. And so uh, we always emphasize this, but I just want you to know that these words in Scripture are more important than anything that I'm going to say this morning. And so as we read in it, as we read through it, even though it's a little bit long, I encourage you to stay engaged, stay focused, and I believe that God has something for each of us in this passage. So Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1, says this. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So he was a Roman soldier, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers, your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who's called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we have this Roman soldier who gets a vision from God to call and bring Peter to him. And so now we're going to jump to Peter. Verse 9, it says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So some of the Christ followers went with Peter too. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. 
And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa to ask for Simon, who is called Peter, he's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all you have been commanded by the word. And so send Uh, This Roman centurion not only sent for Peter, but he has all his friends and family gathered to hear what Peter has to say. So it says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. He went, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did in both the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, talking about the crucifixion. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come out with Peter, meaning the the Christ followers who came with him, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people. For they were declaring then, speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. It's the word of the Lord. Now as you read through the story, you understand that God gives this Roman soldier a vision, and he says, go and grab this guy named Peter and bring him to your household. And so the Roman soldier does that. Peter also has a vision from God, and so he goes with these men and ends up preaching the gospel to these non-Jewish people, which was something they were not prepared for. They only understood that the love of God was for Jewish people, but Peter's now being told, no, it's for everyone, and you need to go and preach to these non-Jewish people. And so he does, and you have this amazing moment where all of these non-Jewish people come to know Jesus. Now, there are a couple things that you need to understand as we dig into this passage because there are some contextual and historical things at play here, and if you don't understand them, then you won't really understand the vision that Peter has, and you won't understand God's command to Peter through this vision. And so to dig into it a little bit, when you read the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, specifically when you read the books containing all of the laws, which are Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, everybody's favorite books of the Bible, right? When you read from these books of the Bible, there's something that you need to understand about all of these laws. And that's that the laws in the Old Testament actually break down into three categories. And those three categories are moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. Moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. Now, moral law is where the Ten Commandments are contained. 
These commandments were actually written in stone by God himself and given to Moses. Now, the Ten Commandments are the standard of all righteousness. They're an expression of God's will. And if you read the Ten Commandments, what they really all have to do with are two things. The Ten Commandments basically boil down to loving God and loving people. And then Jesus reinforces this in the New Testament when when he says this. They asked Jesus, teacher, what's the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus basically doubles down on the Ten Commandments. So understand that God's moral law still stands. That never changes. Then you have something called civil law. And civil law refers to societal law, specifically for the nation of Israel at that specific time. Each society has its own system of laws. We are under the law of our nation in 2022, not under the civil laws of ancient Israel. And so although those laws are good to study, they don't apply to us. Now the third type of law is called ceremonial law. I sound like I'm a teacher in high school right now. The the third type of law is called ceremonial law. And this is what's going to bring us to Peter's vision. Because in the ceremonial law, you'll see that Israel had these dietary laws to follow as well as regulations for celebrating festivals, laws for worshiping God in a sanctuary. Ceremonial law also included regulations for sacrificing animals, conduct for priests, these rituals to maintain purity and information about clean and unclean foods. These laws basically directed Israel in how to be holy and how to be forgiven when they sin. But the thing is, when Jesus came and died on the cross... He completely changed the way in which we are forgiven for sins and reconciled to God. And so since Jesus bought our forgiveness with his blood, he basically made it so we don't have a real use for these ceremonial laws anymore. That's why it says in the book of Ephesians, it says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, talking about these ceremonial laws, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, meaning Jesus did away with that old system and made a new way for us to connect with God and be forgiven. Then in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, For since the law has been but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, talking about that system of sacrificing animals, these ceremonial laws, it can never, by that system, make perfect those who draw near because Jesus that now. And so basically what these verses are saying is that because Jesus became the ultimate and final sacrifice, that although God's moral law still stands, that people are no longer held under these ceremonial laws because that ceremony no longer exists. We're not sacrificing animals. We're not worshiping the way we used to. Jesus ended that system when he died on the cross and became the final sacrifice. And the consequence of that is that it now opened up this possibility that salvation and grace could be for all people whether they were Israelites or not. And so in these dreams that Peter is having, he's instructed to eat these animals that they were not allowed to eat according to the old ceremonial law. So Peter says, God, I don't eat things that are unclean. To which God responds, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. Basically the message that God is sending to Peter is, Peter, the old system has passed away. 
the veil is torn. My sacrifice was sufficient for all people from all nations with all different backgrounds. It's no longer just Jewish people who are my people. Jesus made a way for everyone to be my people. And then he sends Peter on this mission to share the gospel with this non-Jewish Roman soldier to take this vision that he gave Peter and make it a reality. He shows him that he's being serious. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to really lock in on this command that God gives to Peter because it is a command that's passed along to each and every one of us. This command still stands, and so I want to focus on it. And that command is, what God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now what this commandment does is it takes all of the pressure of righteousness and salvation and holiness, it takes that pressure and it puts it directly on the cross of Jesus. It makes everything dependent on Jesus. It takes the pressure off of us and it puts it on Jesus. It makes Jesus the hero. And the reason it's significant is because God is making this declaration that he is the one who calls the shots. He's the one who grants forgiveness. He's the one who grants righteousness. And he's the one who sets the bar for holiness. Because he set the standard in the beginning and then he achieved the standard when he died on the cross for all humanity. And so really what he's telling Peter is whatever preconceived notions or ideas that we have about how someone becomes forgiven or what it means to be holy or what it means to be right with God, whatever preconceived notions we have, we can feel free to throw them in the trash because God is the one who decides what's right. Now the reason why this is good news for us is because God takes this authority to make unclean things clean and he uses it to cleanse us by the blood of Jesus. Because he's a good God, he uses this shot-calling authority that he has to draw people to himself who otherwise would have had no chance. And so this morning, I'm going to look at two things that God can make clean that we just have to accept and come to terms with. Two things that God can make clean that we have to accept and come to terms with. And the first is when God calls you clean. When God calls you clean, you have to accept it. You have to believe that. Now, it's probably not talked about enough, but this is easier said than done to accept when God calls you clean. And, and I would guess that there might be some people in here that say they believe in God and they believe that God has made them clean while at the same time being so self-critical and down on themselves all the time that they don't even have the energy to consider experiencing the joy and peace that God has for them because they're so critical of yourself. God says you're clean, you're made new, and you say, uh, I don't feel that. You know, we, we all know that Satan tries to deceive us. He tries to convince us that we need to find fulfillment and satisfaction in things that aren't God. He tries to convince us that the disdain and apathy and disgust that we feel towards other people is justified. He's always trying to deceive us. That's why he's called the deceiver. Well, but what we so often fail to recognize and understand is that Satan is also the accuser. The Bible says Satan is the accuser, meaning what? Meaning Satan will try to put thoughts in your head about you and your future that are not true. The enemy will try to put thoughts in your head about you and your future that are not true. And we listen to it. We get told the lie that we're hopeless, that we're failures, 
that we're letting everyone down in our lives. We get told the lie that we're terrible parents, terrible spouses, terrible sons and daughters, and terrible friends. All you do is fail. All you do is let people down. You will never be good enough. But you see, in 1 John chapter 4, John says a lot of false prophets are going to try to convince you of things that aren't true. And in this book, when John says false prophets, he's not talking about human beings. He's talking about the enemy and spiritual forces in the world. John says these false prophets are going to lie to you, and they're going to do everything in their power to get you to put all of your focus on the brokenness in your life instead of focusing on the fact that Jesus has saved your life. They're going to try to get you to focus on all the brokenness in your life instead of focusing on the fact that Jesus has saved your life. God has called you clean, but they want you to see yourself as unclean. God has set you free, but they want you to put the chains back on. God has given you a purpose and an identity, but they want you to feel so worthless that getting out of bed even seems like a waste of time. But here's the truth. They are lying to you. These These false prophets are lying to you because the truth is, if you've said yes to Jesus, you are clean and you are forgiven. And when God looks at you, he doesn't associate you with all the things that you still struggle with. When God looks at you, he associates you with the perfection and righteousness of his son. But the world doesn't work that way. I mean, why do you think the world is so broken and depressed and anxious and divided all the time? It's because they want real love, but nothing in this world can give it to them. They want real acceptance, but nothing in this world makes them feel good enough. They want a true identity, but this world can't offer one, so instead it tells them to create their own identity. And if you spend enough time feeling unloved, unaccepted, and unsure of who you are, then eventually you'll find yourself in a place where you'll accept anything that anyone has to give you, even if it's not good enough, even if it's not true. You'll look in the mirror and hate yourself, and all you can see are your failures, and that makes it so easy to succumb to sin. Worthlessness breeds recklessness, and that's how so much of the world is functioning right now. But in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, but that's not the way you learned in Christ. That's not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. Your failures, your shortcomings, all the things that are associated with your old self, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So get rid of the old you. Stop associating yourself with the things that you used to do and the brokenness that used to exist in your life and accept Instead, this identity that God has for you. You know how bad the enemy is fighting to keep you from putting on the true identity that God has for you? Have you ever gone to a clothing store? Gone to a clothing store and there's like a really aggressive salesperson who's trying to sell you something. We'll call it a jacket. And like this jacket is ugly. Like let's just admit that. This jacket is ugly. I'm sorry if that offends you. Well, I'm not sorry if it offends you. I'm sorry if this is your sense of style. But this jacket is ugly. Like, it's not even the right size. But the salesperson's like, no, no, this is, this is perfect for you. And you're like, uh, I don't really know if this is right for me. And they say, no, no, try it on. Like, try it on. And so they get you to try on this jacket. And even after you try it on, you're like, you're like I, don't, 
I don't know, this doesn't really feel like my style, this doesn't feel like me, but then they start to get the other employees to chime in. Oh yeah, that's definitely your style, that looks great on you. And the truth is, even though you know it's not for you, and it doesn't fit you, and it was never designed for you, if you keep listening to these chirping voices long enough, not only will they get you to try it on, they'll get you to buy it. You see, that's how the enemy works. That's how these false prophets that John is talking about work. They sell you things that are not for you. They sell you lies. And they actively undermine the work that God is trying to do in your life. They actively try to stop the transformation that God is doing in you. But the truth is, if God has called you clean, no one gets to call you unclean. Not your friends, not your family, not the world, not false prophets, not even you get to call yourself unclean. And so can I challenge you this morning as Paul challenges to be renewed in your spirit and in your mind and embrace this new identity that God has for you. Get rid of these words useless, broken, failure, ugly, disgusting, talentless, outcast and replace them with chosen, set apart, accepted, valuable, purpose-driven, loved beyond comprehension, worth dying for, child of God. Because that's you. That's you. God has called you clean. Stop letting anyone or anything tell you any differently. We have to accept this and we have to live this. And I don't mean to walk with some arrogant swagger. I mean walking in both humility and confidence because I know that no matter how far I fall, God is still holding me in his hands. And so I can keep my head up and I don't have to listen to what everyone is saying about me because I can only listen to what God has said about me and that's the first thing that we have to accept when we give our life to Jesus, that God makes us clean. The other thing that we have to accept that God can make clean is that when God calls others clean. When God calls others clean, we have to accept it. We have to accept it. In 2019, Kanye West, one of the most successful producers and rappers in this generation, became very outspoken about giving his life to Jesus. He even produced and recorded this gospel album called Jesus is King, which is actually really well done and theologically sound honestly more theologically sound than a lot of stuff you'll hear on Christian radio today. It was this pretty amazing thing. That same year, Christians, Christians dragged Kanye West over the coals and seek to completely discredit his album and his claim to have been saved. They said he was faking it. They said he was disingenuous. They wanted nothing to do with him or his message. Instead of genuinely seeking to disciple Kanye West, he was basically cast aside to try to pursue this relationship with God on his own. And as a new believer, he's very vulnerable, as we all are, and he teamed up with some questionable people who sought to use him. And if you've kept up with any kind of pop culture news over the past couple years, you've seen his very public and spectacle divorce. You've seen these public uh, meltdowns and publicity stunts and cries for attention. But if you look at his life with an empathetic eye, you'll see someone who's really hurting and broken. And I still listen to this gospel album of Kanye sometimes, and given how things have played out in his life, I wonder how things could have gone differently for him if Christian community had embraced him when he made the decision to follow Jesus instead of dismissing him and ostracizing him. Christians should not be cheering and say, see, I told you so. 
when he has this drastic fall from the mountain down into the valley, I think we should be crushed at a missed opportunity to embrace someone who had experienced the radical love and grace of Jesus. And that's not to put Kanye West on a pedestal simply because he's a public figure and his story's very visible, but the truth is Kanye represents a much larger number of people who have found themselves in the very uncomfortable position of, I was found by Jesus and I don't want to be associated with this world anymore, but also the church doesn't want to associate with me. So I don't know where to go. What God has made clean, do not call common. You know, I've even fallen into this trap, if I'm being honest. I've, I've watched people who have hurt and abused people that I love and care about. I've watched those people then give their lives to God, and I've sat back with my arms crossed and said, no way, man. Not on my watch. That's fake. It has to be an act. There's no way this person will give their life to Jesus. That's me being honest. I'm guilty of this. And let me take it a step further and look at the real root cause of a mindset like this, because I think the truth is any time I begin to think or any time you begin to think that there's no way for a specific person or group of people to experience the love of Jesus, any time I begin to think that way, who am I really doubting? Who am I really doubting? Because in my head, I can try to justify and say that I'm doubting the person, but the truth is that I'm actually doubting whether or not God's grace is enough to change this person. It's not me not believing them. It's me not believing that Jesus can save them. It's me doubting Jesus. This is a place I never want to be. And so who is it that you're calling hopeless or treating as if they're hopeless? You know, for Peter in this passage, it was Gentiles. It was anyone who wasn't Jewish. Peter had to open up his own heart and mind to the truth that God's love and grace is actually sufficient enough to cover everyone when all he's ever known is that God's love is for the people of Israel. That's what he had to come to terms with. And so who is it that you're calling hopeless or treating as if they're hopeless? And I think this plays out in a lot of different ways. I don't think it's just a flat out, I don't believe God can save them. I don't think any of us would say that. I think it's more subtle. And so with your actions, who have you never even considered sharing Jesus with because you don't think it'll make a difference? In your head, who do you say, they're not ready. They're too far gone to even begin to grasp Jesus. You know, I'd say something to them, but it'd just fall on deaf ears anyway. Who's the person who has hurt you or someone you love who not only hasn't said they're sorry and asked for forgiveness, but they haven't even changed the way they're acting? They're not remorseful. They don't care. And so to put it bluntly, you could say something to them, but you've decided, you know, it's no sweat off my back if they ever get to know Jesus anyway. When you're online, who are the people who you will throw article after article at and resource after resource at and meme after meme at and you'll say that it's because you love them and want them to know the truth, but you don't love them enough to be vulnerable with them. You don't love them enough to talk about your own struggles with sin. You only love them enough to call them out on their sin. Hear me when I say this, that's not love. That's control. That's manipulation. You know, to be real with you guys on any number of given issues, I actually know where a lot of you stand because you are so quick to be vocal and public about how you feel about certain sins and the people who commit those sins. But if I'm being honest with you, 
I haven't seen you post your own story. I haven't seen you post the ways in which you've struggled with sin. And you might say, well, I don't really know them well enough to get that personal with them. Well, if you know them well enough to stick your finger in their face and tell them the ways in which you're sinning, then you better be vulnerable enough to talk about the ways in which you've messed up. You see, if you're constantly posting about other people's sins and struggles and why they're so wrong, but you never post openly and publicly about what God has delivered you from or the things that you're still struggling with, if that's you, can I just ask you to stop posting things like that because you're not helping and you're not drawing anyone towards Jesus. You see, the truth is we don't get to tell people that they're hopeless and we don't get to treat people as if they're hopeless because we serve a God who says there's no such thing as hopeless. And we have to believe that. We serve a God who hung on a cross and died for us when we were hopeless. But now that we're saved, we want to pretend that all of a sudden God is picky about who he loves and who he wants to save. What God has made clean, do not call common. I'll finish with this. You you know the amazing thing about these common, hopeless Gentiles that Peter takes the time to share the message of the gospel with? They're one of the main reasons that you and I are here 2,000 years later worshiping in a church on the other side of the world with a hope and a purpose and a peace that passes understanding. Because Peter chose to be obedient to God and share the message of the gospel with people, he was pretty sure weren't ready for it and certainly not worthy of it, but he decided to be obedient again, and what happens is the church explodes again in an even bigger way. What I want you to understand is that the reason you're sitting here right now, the reason that you have a relationship with God, you could follow that back for years and generations and a lot of different forks in the roads. You could follow that path back. And along that path, there were probably so many conversations that people had with other people who they were pretty sure weren't ready to hear about God. There were probably a lot of people who trusted that God could actually save people who seemed hopeless, and my guess is that if you followed that path and those decisions far enough, that eventually you would land on Peter saying, you know what, fine, I'll go talk to this Roman soldier because you told me to, and we'll see what happens. And that moment of obedience, and I don't say this lightly, that moment of obedience changed the trajectory of the church and sent the gospel flying in our direction. Because Peter believed God, when he said, what God has made clean, do not call common. You know, what if we were a community that accepted that and actually lived that? What if when we looked around at our family and our friend groups and our neighbors and our coworkers and our social media, that instead of seeing rebellious people with no hope, we saw people who God loves and God wants to connect with and God wants to pour his life into? What if our community, just this church alone, what if we actually believe that simple acts of obedience towards God have the potential to change generations? What if we accepted the things that God says about us because of the sacrifice of Jesus? And what if embracing that new identity actually changed the way we lived our lives? What if we believe that God was actually capable of saving everyone? And what if all the proof we needed to believe that was that God saved us first? Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you're the one who determines what is clean and unclean, and I'm thankful that the reason that I'm called clean is not because of anything I've done, 
It's not because I'm good, because God, I'm not good. But the reason that I'm seeing good in your eyes is because you are willing to come and die for me, God. You're willing to come and hang on a cross when I was at my worst so that I could have this opportunity to have a relationship with you. God, I pray that we're a community that embraces the identity that you've called us to, God. I pray that we're a community that can block out all the noise and all the derogatory statements and, and ideas and identity traits and all these things that the world says we are, that they try to identify us and drag us down with. God, I pray that instead we can see ourselves for who you've called us to be, and I pray that it changes the way that we interact with the world. I pray that it changes the way that we walk and live in the world. And God, I pray that we're a community that doesn't see people as hopeless or broken or lost, but instead sees people that you are trying to connect with. God, I pray that we're a community that doesn't see hopelessness anywhere. We don't see anyone as too far gone because we understand that you bring the dead back to life. God, you can do anything. And I pray that our interactions with the world reflect that, that we believe that no one is outside of your reach. No one is beyond your amazing love and grace. God, I pray that these things shape us as a community and drive the way we see ourselves and see the world. We just aren't good enough on our own, ourselves or to interact with this world. We can't do it apart from you. We can do nothing. God, if we just lean into you and what you've done for us, there is no end to the restoration and healing and peace and life that we'll see, God. So I just pray that you put us in that place of submission and obedience and acceptance. God, what you've called clean, we don't want to see as uncommon or unclean. We want to see the potential in every single life and understand that simple acts of obedience have the power to change generations, hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, if we'll be willing to say yes to what you're doing, making this world new again. We love you and we trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.